Hey, Solid Connection listeners, long time no see. Today on this episode, Colin and I got to talk to Dr. Nana Oseopare. He's an assistant professor of history at Fordham University. Uh, what did we chat about, Colin? We talked about his research. We talked about his upcoming manuscript, tentatively titled Ghana's Cold War, uh, the making of African citizen and state in the Cold War. We talked about decolonization and the efforts of leaders like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana to build a post-colonial society and how that related to the Soviet Union, as well as uh, the former imperial powers. Yeah, this is a bit of a gap in our education. So it was both a treat and a privilege to have Dr. Oseo Pari sit down with us. So take a listen. Quality content. Hope you all enjoy. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So we're here with Dr. Nana Oseyopare. He's an assistant professor of African and Cold War history at Fordham University. Dr. Oseyopare, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering if you could, maybe for the benefit of all of us, briefly give us a little bit of background on Ghana and the Ghanaian independence movement, sort of leading into what a lot of your research concerns. Yeah, so I'll start with a very brief background into Ghana's history. So for those of you who don't know, on March 6th, 1957, Ghana became the first independent sub-Saharan African country named uh, from Britain. Uh, Sub-Saharan uh, equals black in this, in this case. Before independence, Ghana's colonial power was, was Britain. And Ghana is a small country that's most known in the West, particularly for transatlantic slave trade and the Saharan uh, gold trades. Upon independence, Ghana had a population of about 7 million people were in Ghana, and it exports gold, magnesium, and the early Ghanaian leaders, uh, like Kwame Nkrumah, went to school in America for their bachelor's as well as their PhDs, at particularly uh, HBCUs. And so in the 1930s and 40s, the early Ghanaian leaders had lived and studied in America and Britain. And so by the 1950s, many of these leaders had looked to ideas such as communism, pan-Africanism, and African nationalism as ways to gain independence from Britain. So upon independence, the question for Ghana and for Nkrumah was how to build a self-sufficient, modern, industrialized, socialist, non-neocolonial state and to cut its ties with Britain in that strong umbilical cord sense. So that is Ghana and it's in West Africa. And so as these post-colonial leaders were looking to build, we're looking to build a post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa, how, how, do, how did they envision that? And then how going forward did it play out? During the independence movements, there were various models as to what an independent Africa could look like. For some, for some African leaders, it involved simply, well, not simply, but getting equal rights within the British or French Empire. So, for many of the many of the Francophone leaders to be part of a greater France. For other uh, leaders, they were thinking of creating a West African nation, where all people with Africa be one nation. And for some, like Nkrumah 
the idea of Pan-Africanism was very strong, whereas the entire African continent would be one country with one military and one political economic system in an effort to prevent Western countries from recolonizing or attacking them to create a strong future. So that was some of the ways in which people were thinking about an independent post-Africa. And so to tie in Ghana-Soviet relations, in your paper, Uneasy Comrades, you actually mentioned that to kind of understand the relations that were occurring in the 50s and 60s, we actually have to go back to the 1917 Russian Revolution. Could you kind of expand on that? Yeah. So um, one of the interesting, I thought, interesting things about Ghana-Soviet relations or Africa-Soviet relations is people tend to think that the relationship began in 1950s and 60s. When in fact, the Russian and Soviet Union, many Black thinkers across the world saw this space as where um, equality and freedom and anti-racism were based and they could see what was happening. But also, it showed them a different economic vision of what, of what society outside of Western racial capitalism and basically um, European colonial exploitation might look like. And so many of these, not many, a few people went to the Soviet Union during the 1920s to see what was happening. And they read a lot of Lenin and they debated a lot of Leninism, uh, Trotskyism. And the Soviet Union became a way to envision an alternative future of how a multiracial national society could perhaps come together. But with with, uh, Stalinism taking place in the 1930s, and with the Soviets seemingly supporting Mussolini against Ethiopia, though one of the few independent African states in 1935, many Black leaders then began to see the Soviets as simply another white empire, one that was intent on using its influence to perhaps recolonize Africa. So when you reach the 19, late 50s, these incidences are still in the mind of African leaders as they pivot to how can we navigate this very perilous world for African and Black states of people. So when independence finally starts to arrive and decolonization starts to get the ball rolling, knowing that there is this background of we need to approach this relationship warily, how do leaders like Nkrumah relate to the Soviet Union? In initially, in the 50s, British, British Russia, strong pressure on ant- anything anti-communist, any anti-colonial, pro-Ghanian nationalist dances, articulations, the British and the West tried to frame these as communist-inspired. And so in like the British secret files, people like Nkrumah are under the communist sympathizers' fire. That's where all their deliberations in the British view is taken. So in the 50s, Nkrumah had to, for instance, expel some people who were overtly pro-Marxist uh, and communist from the soon-to-be independent government. So in the 50s, what you see is a lot of secret discussions about communist and Marxist sympathies, but nothing overt. And the example in the British Guyana where the Americans and the and the British overthrow a Chagan, a Jagan, 
who was talking about Marxism and whatnot before independence was a warning that independence was not yet secured until it was secured and that they had to stop this communist dramatism and first the independence and then see what they could do. And the question of Soviet involvement just on an ideological besides the economic front was colonialism had brought together different nationalities with about 20 different languages in what is today Ghana. So the question was, no one's a Ghanaian. <laughs> this doesn't exist, right? It's an anachronism. They're all British subjects. And the Soviet example of bringing these different peoples and Soviet uh, respect together to create a new Soviet citizen was uh, an idea for Ghana's how to create a new Ghanaian citizen um, in this in this world. Was the was alliance with the Soviet Union and sort of a, a communist ideology a means to an end, or was it the end that these leaders were trying to reach? So I think when we think about African leaders and communism and Soviet Union, I think it's good to separate communist ideology with the Soviet state. And so, whereas some would say the imperialists, the Americans, the British, and the French oftentimes conflated communist and Marxist ideology with Soviet foreign policy, African leaders were very much attuned to the separate. So in regards to communist ideology, Marxist ideology, they said, okay, in what way can we build our country to economically move forward without creating vast disparities and the brutalities that capitalism wrought in our countries? And similarly, in regards to certain foreign policy in Soviet state, the question was, how could they help us? What resources, via money, technology, or goods, could they assist us with to build this state? At the same time, ensuring that they were not going to, as a Padmore says, swap one set of white masters being the British for another being the Soviets. And the Americans and the British try and put pressure on the Ghanaian state not to engage with the Soviets saying we already have lots of money and interests in Ghana and we will pull out or hurt you economically if you do. So the Ghanaian state is trying to navigate this particular tension. I argue we must see this tension within the lens of Africans trying to figure out how to deal and how to live, in fact, right, in the post-colonial world and not simply as the West and the East trying to manipulate or pull them left or right. When scholars today write about African leaders, African states in regards to the Soviet Union, oftentimes the archives and the documents they use are non-African centered, as in they are British or American or Russian, not Russian, Soviet, understandings of what is going on. And the histories we see are often just reproductions of that. But, you know, back to Alera's question initially, you know, about going back to 1917, if we go back before that too, in the late 1800s, African, African and Black people, so African people are thinking about equality and independence. There is a whole list of uh, African leaders and people thinking about this before there ever was a Soviet Union. And so once 1917 happened, 1920s, a lot of uh, African 
pushes for independence via the trade unions is framed as they are being manipulated by the communists. Africans themselves don't have the mental capacity to think about their own oppression. And this idea even spreads to the US of A, right? And the anti-communist thing. So when we talk about African agency, to me, it it's almost seems very basic. But when we discuss them without it, it gets back to this idea that Africans and Black people don't have the mental capacity to understand their own oppression, and it requires foreign, foreign establishments to do this for them. And I find that deeply offensive on m- multiple levels in my, in my being. That's why I want us to bring up in my work. Kind of following up on that, I mean, it is very disheartening to see that in terms of these Cold War scholars researching African-USSR relations, there it's one-sided. There's a, there's a gap. And there is the disregard for Ghanaian for African agency. So why why have scholars kind of been not engaging with African archives? Why why the gap? So there's multiple reasons for this. Um, the most generous reason is a lack of funds. A lack of funds to go to Africa. That's the most generous reading of, of that. The other one is, maybe I'm being harsh here, is the notion that Africa doesn't produce knowledge. So there's nothing to go there to actually see and find. And so, and so to learn about Africa, we can just go to the archives in England, you know, America, and we'll find what, what we need. I mean, there are a few people who are going to Africa, you know, uh, different countries. Or they'll say, oh, when we go, there's nothing there to see. But where are you going? And this follows something which even post-colonial African historians are running into where they heavily criticize the African archives and African governments for being incompetent to store or whatever key documents. And what for me ironic is I think Russian history is one of the most rich, you know, rich fields in discipline. And yet I know personally that the Russian archives are also limiting people's access to documents, but I don't see Russian scholars then not going to Russia write about Russia, right? So there's a discrepancy here in that. So yeah, I mean, before I get in trouble going on, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to follow up on that, you you mentioned again in the article, I, I mentioned previously that you, you kind of drew from a lot of ver- primary documents, like letters, espionage dispatches, politician letters. What was that like kind of going through all of these archives, especially like African archives, which it, it feels like not a lot of people have, have gotten to touch on. Like, did you find anything interesting there that you weren't expecting? In the Ghanaian archives, you know, I had a hunch to go to Tamale, which is in northern Ghana. I just said, you know what, I might as well go. There's no reason why I shouldn't go. I just went. And it was there that I was very friendly with the, one of the archivists and he just brought out a whole bunch of documents on Anasubit relations. He just brought it out. It wasn't the well, it was in, right, in a regional archive, it was just there. And I was reading through it, and what surprised me, one was just how difficult it was also for the Soviet families who came to Ghana in these regions to live and try and help. But also, what I'm thinking about in my chapters is called Ghost Projects and its Malcontents how the attempts to build these factories actually never happened. And 
for three, four years, they're sending letters about building something and it never happens. In the Russian archive, you know, I went there to look for just other economic, political discussions. But what shocked me was the racism. That really shocked me. And initially, I thought it was just, you know, the students, those in the lowest, you know, lowest hanging fruit. But then it was also happening to the, the officials. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a lot. And that shocked me. I didn't expect to see that. It also hit me deeply because I was experiencing these things in different forms in the present. And other Ghanaians were too. And to read about this, it was almost like I was reliving my life. It was really strange. So that made me think about things also very differently. Yeah. In the, in the same article that we were just talking about, you have these two very striking stories back to back of students in Russia and the United States both experiencing racism and that kind of creating a collective identity for, as you'd said before, that there had not been a Guinean in before the creation of Ghana. And that this experience of racism starts to produce a sense of what it means to be Guinean. And I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that. Yeah, so that was a very infamous story, which you all probably know of African students protesting in the Red Square after Asariado was, was killed. And um, coming, from, coming from Ghana, um, one of the benefits is with names, I can tell when a name sounds Ghanaian. <laughs> okay, this person sounds Ghanaian. But in the literature, broadly, Africans and Black people are flattened, right? They just are Black and African. Racism is just flattened too. And so when I was reading the, article, the pieces on this story, Julie Hessler and Alison Blakely, I love, love his work. He's a doyen. They mentioned he's Ghanaian and then mentioned incident, racism, and okay. So I'd also like believed it was the case and didn't think about it. I used to think about it. And then at Stanford, actually, at the Hoover Archives, I happened to just fortunately hit upon another story and a bunch of documents. And the story actually, as you know, you, you know, was about Ghanaian students in America being attacked. And even the paper, you know, says black students attacked. But then when I read the actual story and I saw their names. I said, no, whoa, 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 whoa. These are actually Ghanaian names. And then I pulled up with that and saw that the U.S. the US government actually apologized to the Ghanaian embassy over that. So in fact, they were treating foreign Blacks better than they were uh, treating their own citizens, right? Their own Black citizens. Because they leave to apologizing for these acts to the foreign Black government. And then I saw that the Ghanaian students in America were writing to the Soviet government in D.C., official in D.C. and in Moscow, complaining about how they're treating Ghanaians in Moscow. And then I, then the Alabama signs and pull up, it's actually to that. And so basically what I saw was these were interconnected instances that were not as separate as I, as I thought, and that just fortuitous luck brought these things together in my head in that particular way. 
I actually read an article saying that the USSR actually kind of capitalized on U.S. racism in a way. They're kind of like they had these posters saying, like, look, look what's happening in the U.S. You should come here because it's we have this like Marxist utopia. It's not racist here. Come on over. But yeah, I mean, as your articles uh, highlight that they ran into the same problems over there as well. It's yeah. Yeah, And even to bring it to the present day, thinking about Black Lives Matter and the well, the 2016 election and the whole fear of Russian interference and the U.S. Senate, I think about two thirds of that was directed at African-Americans. And to me, that hit me, hit me in two ways. One, in a very bad way, because the assumption then again went back to the same thing like a century ago, was that when the Russian propaganda machines are showing police brutality because African-Americans is that it didn't exist, it didn't happen, that we're only upset about it because the Russians are showing it. I mean, it was one of these things where, again, right, the Russian government was using an issue in American society that hasn't been resolved, and that's anti-Black racism. And from the Soviet Union to now, right, it's, it's the, I don't say both hanging fruit, Achilles heel, I don't want to say that, but it's the biggest wound in society that you just can keep on poking at it because it hasn't actually been treated. And so the Soviets kept on doing that. Um, but unfortunately, as you said, things there were not too much. Well, and how, how different yeah. were they? I mean, I mean, I've seen these, you know, propaganda posters and I, I know this is kind of a, a line that gets, you know, discarded as, 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 as what about ism? They're just trying to distract us from what they're doing, even though, you know, they're not wrong. They're it's just, why are they using it? So I'm, I was wondering if you could talk about that then, like what were, what was going on with racism in the Soviet Union? So I, I guess before, you know, what about ism <laughs> is during the same period, 50s, 60s, there's a state we all might've heard of called Apartheid South Africa that has codified and is causing white supremacist laws and, you know, killing black people, you know, and this whole period, right? America is supporting this racist regime, right? So even the fact that the Soviets are articulating that this regime is racist and should be disbanded, even if we say, what about ism? At least they're doing that. Right. At least they're actually doing that. Who in the in the Soviet instance, for some Soviet scholars, they also wonder how racism in the anti-black sense gets transported or moved from the West or Africa to the Soviet Union because they don't supposedly have colonies. But we know that these empires were discussing ideas and these ideas seep through different cultures. We can we can see that. So the Soviet Union, what's different is that Black people at least can sit can sit side by side and work side by side with white people. In America, Jim Crow, we know that's not the case, right? There's a whole legal doctrine as to that. So the Union, that's not the case. And when we look at moments of racism in the Soviet Union against Africans and Black people, quite a few times they're involved there evolves, involves a white woman or woman. Black men in the British Empire and America, 
South Africa, there's always this fear of this hypersexualized black man. And what's fascinating about the Soviets is that in, even in the official documents, the Indian governments, they play upon <laughs> this sexual predator that is the black African man. So in that sense, in that sense, the racism is quite similar in the way the, the way the black man gets figured and the way the need for the state or white supremacy and white or white masculinity to protect white women from these black predators. So that's surprisingly very consistent throughout these different species. Yeah, I'm like a whole different tangent. No, tangents are good. We welcome tangents. Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking I, I'm currently in a domestic terrorism research project, and I've been doing personally a lot of research as well on the white supremacist movement in the 70s and 80s. And what you're saying absolutely like parallels like this, this need to protect the children, the white women, like the innocent. You have to protect them from from this population that's out of control. And like that was such an ideology that like moved these people to action. and it's sort of like these parallel stories that are happening both in the U.S. and the USSR. But it's not as publicized. Like what's happening in the USSR is and is known. And it's why you can, I, I, I don't know, it, because there's so much propaganda about, look at this incredible problem with anti-Black racism that the United States has. And it's not just, you know, I mean, this isn't just something that the Soviet Union used against us. I was reading Madeleine Albright's book, Prague Winter, and she has this anecdote in there about a, a Czech woman who uses something, you know, a similar argument to some American soldiers that are trying to intervene when some Germans are being tortured in the Sudetenland. It's just a very easy like way to disregard American intervention. It's like, well, you have no ground to stand on, but it's not as used against the Soviet case. The the propaganda seems to have had longer legs. In the 60s, the U.S. government set up a trial, like a, well, a hearing, excuse me, a hearing. And the hearing was to get all, well, as many African students as they could from the Soviet Union who were disillusioned by it to come to the U.S. Congress and testify as to how racist things were also in the Soviet Union. So what you see is Western media and whatnot, and even a journalist asking Ghanaian ambassadors the question of why are you sending your students to the Soviet Union when things there are also very racist and they're being attacked and they are being killed. And so they're trying to say what about them? It's that they're hypocrites. And the West is really trying to push this propaganda machine because they cannot themselves say that things here are okay, right? And to try the other, other side, then it's like, okay, if they're both racist, at least, at least we have um, economic advantage, and then we all speak English. I mean, it's a small thing, but a big thing, right? The language connection and barrier. So the West is trying to publicize it and something which... African leaders hear about and in response say, but it's bad here too. You know, right? It's actually really bad in America. So you are currently actually working on a manuscript, Ghana's Cold War. How, how's that going? It's, it's coming. COVID, a little pause to it, but it's, it's coming. And I'm just trying to, at this point, you know, just rethink 
how the Soviet connection, you know, uh, shaped Ghana's ideas of its, its economy and African program ideas of who Ghanaians are, how Ghana is trying, trying to use the Soviet connection to really push for an independent Africa and an independent Ghana. So, so I'm trying to write about and seeing you know, so far how the Soviets are helpful and also at the same time, in some cases, they're undermining this process with how they respond to particular incidents, incidences in Soviet Union, in Africa in general, and abroad, yeah. Could you give us kind of a couple of examples of the sort of the give and also the take of, of what they were doing? So one of the gives is that upon independence, Ghana only had one real university. So in order to create a trained a group of people to come and actually build this country, the Ghanaians sent students to the Soviet Union. They were there to begin with. People went to study in nuclear reactors, uh, how to build nuclear uh, scientists, and these very heavy, heavy goals and dreams. That's the given part. The taking part is in some cases, you have engineers whose degree programs were changed from studying, let's say, uh, aerodynamics for built planes to something more mundane, like how to be an electrician. And the argument, yeah, and the argument being that, oh, Ghana's a small country, it's poor, you won't ever have the chance to do this in Ghana, so we're gonna make you an electrician per se. And the Ghanaian student saying, I could have learned right, right to the embassy, and I'm saying I could have learned that in Ghana. I didn't have to come to this cold, faraway land to do this, right? So this is that, in a very small case, this give and take on that on that front. I can't imagine going all the way to Moscow to learn how to become an aerospace engineer, and they say, no, no, you want to be an electrician instead. It was not a very good. I can feel it in the papers. Yeah, I can only imagine. Actually, you, you mentioned the embassy as well. I kind of also wanted to, to touch on this, but in a lot of your writing, you write that kind of these, these students and citizens really relied on this embassy. What is the history of that embassy? How much say did it have in Soviet goings on? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, you know, as you know, before independence, there's no embassy. So what embassy does is even like not, not really like thought of. And initially when they embassies established in 1960-ish, the goal, which I argue, is to create economic ties. But what I what I saw in the archive is because of what's happening to the students and embassy officials, the embassy then realized that they actually have to protect their foreign nationals. And the sad thing, perhaps, maybe it's not sad, but the reality of it is that Ghana lacks any financial or military ability to actually protect its citizens. So many of the complaints are heard, but the Soviets don't respond to it. And when they do, it's like four months later, five months later, if at all, and they blame the Ghanaians. And so, so the embassy is writing all these letters in protest about it. And to bring it to the present day, years ago, I spoke to the Ghanaian, Ghanaian deputy ambassador, and she mentioned to me that you know racism still exists, and 
they've received complaints from Ghanaian citizens there and they write letters. And it gets back to the point of, okay, so it's been 60 years <laughs> and letters are materially, ineff- I mean, they're ineffective. And so the embassy's role is fascinating in that it's changing, but the present day, it's still just almost an ineffective bureaucratic machine in terms of protecting the citizens abroad. Yeah, same problems back then are the same problems today. I think we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah, lack of money is a problem. <laughs> Colin, you got anything else? Trying to think of a happy note to end on, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I should have brought the embassy up before, <laughs> but it just came to me. I think as a part of the happy, happy note is the, the more I actually know, that's not a happy note. <laughs> Hold on. Um, we can leave on whatever note you want to leave on. If that's the note you want to leave on, we can leave it there. I think in, in, in writing this project, what I've come to appreciate more, the multiple ways Ghanaian people really, really tried in that decade to position themselves and to elevate issues of freedom, issues of economic and scientific equity via their relationships with the Eastern Bloc, as well as in the West in some sense. So, so they are they are acutely aware of their leverage or lack thereof, but are positioning themselves in the African continent using the same ideals posited by the Europeans, human rights and all that good talk they talk about, that if this is true and you believe this, then let's do this. And that was heartening that people were fighting. They were fighting for people like myself who would be born 30 years, 20 years later. And for my mom's generation that were born a month after independence so that they might live a better life uh, than they did. So that was heartening that the fight was there and it, and for us it uh, continues. Yeah, this is great. I uh, really appreciated talking about this because it doesn't like come up a lot, just the whole decolonization Soviet Union tie. I think it's it's good content. On that note, Dr. Isayapari, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hope to see you all in person soon. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.